Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Phil Tiger. Slacker Podcast. Hello, Slackers, and welcome to this week's Slacker Podcast. It is a podcast with a lead singer from Elbow, the Manchester, Maryland, that is Guy Garvey, somebody whose music I've I've enjoyed a lot over the years, and I've just respected him on many different levels. Uh, he is the person that I, I think he is probably, if you put in a top league of people that you want to go for a pint with in the UK, Guy Garvey has to be up up at the top you'd have guy garvey up there um you'd have like tom hardy up there who else would i have up there judy dench she'd be good crack for a pint wouldn't she um but yeah we've got guy garvey uh we didn't have pints we had uh way too much caffeine actually i think uh two teas and a coffee from from my memory and yeah we sat down in his studio in brixton just before lockdown i think this was uh the either the start of march or end of february and it was the last non-Zoom podcast uh, that I recorded. And, yeah, it was really fun. I, I, I haven't really touched it much in the edit because, like, he, he's such a great talker. And, like, we're both broadcasters, so there's there's plenty to talk about. And, yeah, he's just, just a really, really genuinely interesting dude. I think you're going to really like this one. Anyone who's listened to the show uh, who follows me on Instagram or Twitter at Billy Taggart... I am going to be doing like a, a live DJ set called The Melancholy Social and it's going to be at 9pm every single Wednesday. So if you follow me on any platform at all, at Philly Taggart, I will post about it and you can watch it. It's got sound effects such as it has wavy dance music, but like kind of chill, very, very chill for a Wednesday. And it's also got sound effects such as don't be jealous that I've been chatting online with babes all day. It also has shoutouts and other sound effects, such as... Might have gone a little bit overboard on the on the sound effects for it. But yeah, but it's just really fun. I, I did the first one last week, and there was about 2,000 people on, and it was just shouting names out, playing lethal tunes, playing stupid sound effects, 
but all basically just about good music and connecting with people in this savagely, savagely weird and unsettling time. Um, Also, big up to uh, anybody who is supporting the the podcast on Patreon. Uh, I've got, we've got new Patreons um, this week. Literally logging on to the website uh, as we go. Yeah, big respect to them. At Alan Ray. Leanne Alanis, um, Nazra Ahmed, uh, Sam, and Tobias Dwyer. You, my friends, are doing the Lord's work. Uh, so I decided uh, I'm going to treat you with a brand new, fresh podcast. And it's only for people who support uh, the podcast on the Patreon. Um, every week I'm going to do one where I suggest a real good album, um, a really good track, uh, and talk about some of the, the news stories that are that are happening uh, this week or the week before, I've just gone and recorded it. Actually, we talked a lot about Takashi uh, Six Nine being released from jail. What's going on with that? Uh, we talked a lot about uh, Bono and why Irish people don't seem to uh, treat Bono with the respect some people think he deserves. What, what do we deserve? You'll find out on the Patreon podcast. Uh, he turned sixty and he's got this incredible playlist up of um, songs save my life and there's loads of other sort of news stories that we're talking about up there too so yeah an extra sort of 20 25 minute podcast that i'll be doing every single week um that i'll be posting on patreon um big love to anybody who goes to patreon.com forward slash slacker podcast right let's get into this week's podcast with guy garvey in three two one This is a bit of a treat. I am in Brixton and I am in the studio of the the one and only Guy Garvey. Hello. Hi Phil. How you doing? I'm very well, thanks. This is a this is a nice spot. It's good, isn't it? I uh I share this room with a lovely man uh, called Hugh. Uh in fact it's his spot. He sublets it to me mm-hmm. office hours, Monday to Friday. Yeah. And it's where I do my radio programme. It's where I write my songs, and I also do co-writing, and I also do soundtrack these days as well. Man of many talents. Yeah, all involving me going on. Who <laughs> <laughs> like I, I see like two names written on the whiteboard there: Dermot Kennedy and Sam Fender. Mm. Those two people you've had in, or no? I've or, never... or is this a list of people to kill? <laughs> <laughs> I've never met either of them. Uh, Dermot Kennedy uh, is just a really promising singer. Do you know him? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've met him. He's good. Uh, and Sam Fender, uh, I started writing a song and <clears throat> I realised that it would really suit Sam. So yeah, yeah. I'll, those are names of people that I'm firing work off to and saying, if you have a fancy writing together. I'd love to hear that. It's just an experiment, really. I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've done little bits of, of co-writing with... Um, various singer-songwriters. I, I, I suppose that and the soundtrack work that I'm doing is exercising the craft that I've learned through being in Elbow all these years. It's, the writing I do with Elbow is very, very collaborative. You mm-hmm. know, we all write those songs together. I'm the only lyricist, but, um, yeah, we all write that stuff together. Um, so I know how to collaborate. And if you're co-writing a, a song with somebody else, you can go anywhere, character-wise. Elbow stuff tends to be songs about 
my life, our experiences as a band sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and often about being in a band, you know, the weather to fly and songs like that. Um, whereas co-writing a song from scratch with somebody, quite often I'm listening to them talk about their lives and helping them put it into song form and using the the craft side rather than the uh, the soul searching of the, of the blank canvas. It's Does that make it uh, a little bit easier when you're walking out of the studio at the end of the day? Because I'd imagine it, if you're writing some pretty heavy lyrics, it'll stick with you for a while. Whereas if you're working with somebody else, you can sort of clock out almost. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And and also, I have never worked with a musician that hasn't taught me something. Mm. You know, everybody comes at songwriting from a different motivation, um, and. Yeah, it's just a, a way of furthering exploring music, which I love to do. Are there artists or uh, out there that we that you've written songs with that people mightn't mightn't know? Uh, that that people might not know. They might not know that you wrote songs for X or Y or Z. I wrote the lyrics for three songs on the Massive Attack album Heligoland. Wow! And I, and I, I sang one of them. Uh-huh. Um, and Martina Topley Bird sang another one of mine on that album. Um, and that's extraordinary. I've loved mm. her voice for years. So that's probably actually what got me into the idea. The, the idea of writing words for somebody else to sing is, is a real thrill. Um, and I've done string arrangements for the Arctic Monkeys and I Am Clute. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I sort of, I like to keep my hand in. I like mm-hmm. to explore. Wow. Well, I mean, we could talk about other people all day, but like this is <laughs> this is like when when people are downloading this, it has your name like right up there, like like just like Brixton Academy down the road, mm-hmm. just says Guy Garvey up in lights. Um, so at the start of every podcast, we we play a um, a very early demo, uh, as early as we can get. Um, some artists can be very guarded with 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 what they give us, and and some can throw out something warts and all. Um, what what are we sort of getting from from you today on this episode? Well, I thought what might be interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, what might be interesting for people who know Elbow's music is an early version of a song from the first album. Um, three of the songs that made the first album were written a long time before it was released. To very briefly go over our history, we were called Soft. We were called Mister Soft. Then we were called Soft. And in the time that we were learning to play our instruments, the music went from crazy, sped up sort of funk uh, to the sort of thing we're known for now, Mm -hmm. sort of balladeering and anthemeering. And the songs that made us realise we needed to change the name of the band because all the record companies in the land had been getting demos from Soft for a long time and would have assumed they knew what the music sounded like and chucked them straight in the bin. Uh-huh. Uh, and we realised if we wanted to be listened to afresh, we needed to pretend we were a different band. <clears throat> so we very hurriedly came up with the terrible name Elbow. Um, but these songs were written just before that. So really, these are soft songs, technically speaking. Wow. Okay, right. Let's, let's, let's whack it on. So this is Powder Blue. Uh, and this song got us our first record deal. Um we what we did was we decided once we changed the name of the band and we'd written enough material for a show, we decided that it was really it was the last dance for the band. We, we said if nothing happens off the back of this, we'll call it a day and get on with our lives because all of our friends had already gone to university and we're getting mm-hmm. on with their lives. Um, and uh, we decided to make an EP 
so we forgot the idea of labels and we just said, let's make something to keep for us forever. And we made the Noise Box EP. There were 50 pressed in my manager's uh, office. Wow. Like, like, I mean, I'd say they're pretty rare right now. Yeah. Uh, they're CDRs. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if, if any of, them of quid. work anymore. Um, and they were numbered 1 to 50 as well. Mm-hmm. And we sold them at that gig and at Piccadilly Records on Oldham Street. Um, and on there, there was um, the three songs that made the album were uh, Newborn, Red, and this song, Powder Blue. So this is the, the Noise Box EP version of Powder Blue.
I'll tell you what, what that's uh, that's one way to end the song there, isn't it? Yeah. Wild. The memories come flooding back. Yeah, I was I was like what well, I was kind of like we were listening to it like they didn't say a word to each other but you must have been lost in concentration or like lost in nostalgia really yeah and in, I haven't listened to that song in any version for so long like for a couple of years at least maybe a lot longer than that because hmm. um, we don't play it anymore mm-hmm. uh, and yeah absolutely lost in it and it's yeah listening to it now it's quite audacious for a you know, it's a big fit. idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like normally with a a band at the beginning, it's it's quite scratchy and raw. But because you had a couple of years in Soft and Mister Soft before that, you kind of had worked a lot of the kinks out. I'd imagine. Yeah, and it's also the arrangement. I was really proud of that. Mm. I remember exactly how it was written. Uh, the reason the drum beat's so simple and the bass is so simple is because. Craig, who's our producer these days and the keyboard player in the band, sent the music over fully formed it, with in terms of drums, bass, and piano, and it was he was using all the effects off his keyboard that he had to hand. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty bad drum samples, um, pretty bad bass sample, and then his piano, that sort of very very intense, you know, referring uh, rolling arpeggio. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was very fond of the megaphone effect because... It sounds great. Yeah. I like it. Uh, well, it, it's one one of the things I notice when I'm listening to new music from artists, <clears throat> young bands, etc. Mm-hmm. You'll quite often... My biggest complaint normally is that the vocals are mixed too low. Um, or with singer-songwriters, that they've double-tracked the vocals, you know, meaning they've recorded their voice twice. And what that does is... Uh, or, or they put that megaphonic f- effect on that I have there. Mm-hmm. All these things are disguising your voice. They're all hiding your voice uh, because you're young and you haven't got the confidence to have it as it is. Is that why you did it there? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also production-wise, if you squash your voice in that way, you can still hear every word, but it gives the rest of the music more size mm-hmm. because you're much thinner than, than a piano or a bass sound. So your vocal doesn't get in the way of... You want the music to sound grand. That's a good way of doing it. What what year was that recorded? Like what? Obviously, it's a very very <coughs> early era. I think the song was written at the end of '96. Um, the that particular recording was made in '97. Uh, so it's it, bang in the middle of Britpop, <coughs> almost like towards the, <coughs> the end of it. Absolutely, and um, yeah. The, the the that isn't actually the demo. The demo recording, which is lost, yeah, uh, yeah, was done in Craig's house, and I put the vocals on through singing through a set of headphones, which is how I got my megaphonic effect. <laughs> That's how like the early grime MCs used to do it. They used to sing, they used to sort of like do all their bars and all the rapping through the side of a headphone, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's what I'd done, uh, and I was so proud of it once it had the backing vocals on it and stuff. I really wanted it to be finished because what originally happened was we've always worked like that separately, sending each other vibes and putting things on each other's recordings. And mm. In those days, it was a four-track Yamaha cassette studio thing. But I was so proud of the song, I wanted to give it an ending because Craig just tailed off into comedy jazz to make me laugh. Yeah. Um, so I smashed a bottle in my bin in my kitchen originally mm-hmm. to give it that ending. 
And somebody pointed when it came out that uh, it happens at the end of an Edith Piaf tune, perhaps her most famous one. Yeah. Je ne regret rien. Um, she smashes a wine glass, but I think it was a Lucasade bottle in my case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and then we made the EP with a guy called Steve Lloyd, who had a studio in Presswich Village. And Steve Lloyd was a very, very beloved man. He died a few years ago, tragically. Um <clears throat> But Steve was a wonderful fella. He ran all the PAs in Manchester. So he installed he installed all the sound systems in Manchester. And he had a lockup where PA equipment was fixed and stored. Uh, and he ran bands around in his vans. And he had loads of crew. Yeah. Uh, and he had this little studio called Noisebox uh, in Presswich. And we called it the Noisebox EP because Lloydie was really doing us a favour. I, I think the whole thing costs... Mm. I can't even remember, 50 quid or something. It yeah. Minimal anyway. Uh, and he was such a hardworking man. And he was one of these guys that's impossible to pay. He just, would, he just won't take it off you. He just would forget to invoice. You know, my manager, Phil, who's still our manager to this day, would have to badger him and badger him to be paid. Everybody did because Lloydie wasn't doing it for the money, basically. He just wanted the great stuff to come out of his studio. He did. And he wanted to provide music for all of inner city Manchester, and he worked too hard. He worked way too hard. And during these sessions, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd come into the noise box, you know, we'd already be in there, because mm -hmm. he let us have some keys. We'd be in there ready to go, and he said, right, let's listen to where we left it. And he'd put the thing on, and he would fall asleep instantly at the desk. <laughs> and, and we were so young, we didn't know what to do. So I remember me and Craig looking at each other like, what do we do? So we made him a coffee, we bought him a Mars bar, and more than once we had to abandon the session because he needed to sleep. Um, so he literally did work too hard? Yes. And then adorable, and the kind of man my manager is that perhaps his colleagues these days wouldn't appreciate, was when we sold 50 copies of the Noisebox EP, when we sold all of them, uh, he put a gold CDR in a little frame <laughs> and he made Steve Lloyd uh, on 50 sales of the Noisebox EP. He made him a framed yeah. gold disc. That's amazing. Which is very sweet. Is I'd it, love does, to know where that is. I was actually. going to say, does that, does that still exist? It must do. It, yeah. it, it will be among Pete, uh, Steve's things, I'm guessing. So uh, arguably uh, that that track is the one that was make or break, really, wasn't it? It got us our first deal, yeah. Mm. Nick, Nick Angel who's still our, our great friend to this day. He's he's known more now as a music supervisor. Mm -hmm. He's perhaps the leading music supervisor in this country, at least. Uh, Nick signed us to Island Records, which was just before it was bought by Universal. And in fact, it was in the purchasing of Universal that we lost our deal before the album came out. That's, yeah, I like in my research of this, because like, I, I know... <clears throat> I, I've got a potted history of the band because I've been a fan for a while and I've got I've got the records and bits and pieces but I I went away and sort of like did a little bit of reading beforehand and yeah I, I noticed that you got dropped before your e debut album even came out yeah not due to the fact of like they didn't like the music or anything just victims of circumstance you must yeah. have thought that was the end of it then um it was tempting <clears throat> no we, but I, you must have like thought right well well Jesus like we've We've got no luck. <laughs> well, we'd, yeah, it did feel that. I mean, the worst thing was that in the initial negotiations, they said we could keep the recordings. Which is rare for them. You, yeah. You should, well, it, it wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we remade the record with Ben Hillier. Mm. Uh, and luckily for us, Steve Osborne and Ben Hillier were on 140DB management. I think they still are. And... Uh, 
because they were spars, the producers from the same stable, um, any trickiness we could iron out with the phone call, you know, mm -hmm. how did you get that sound, etc. Um, and Ben brought something to it, and we got to make our first album twice. Is the way it feels now. At the time, <clears throat> we we were we were ready to move on writing wise. It, you know, it'd been three years in the case of this song before it came out. Um, more, in fact, did, it came out in two thousand one. Have you ever like, like when you when the second one came out? Did you ever think, maybe, oh, the first one's better, or the second one's better? Uh, the second one was really difficult to make. So at the time, I had no perspective. When, when Do you the, mean the second version of the album? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. No, the second one was definitely better. Yeah. Well, because, like, I mean, classic case in point, they're staying in Manchester. <clears throat> Not many people have ever heard the Stone Roses' Garage Flower, mm -hmm. which was the debut album, really. Mm. But it was mixed and recorded, and it was just horrible. It just, mm. it just didn't sound the way that the debuts did. Then they went and did it with a different producer, and obviously one of the most famous debut albums of all time. Well, there's, there's something that happens right at the beginning of a band's uh, career, success-wise. Mm -hmm. um, if you watch the Oasis documentary, uh, is it called Supersonic? Yes, uh, that's amazing as well. Yeah, and if you hear how those songs sounded just before they were recorded, you know, same guitarist, same words, same melodies, all the same players, and they were awful. Isn't it crazy how, how much yeah. production can change things? Well, it wasn't just the production. There's there's an energy, there's a savagery, and, mm. and there's also uh, the thing that's o often overlooked with, with Oasis, particularly that first record, is the optimism in the lyrics. It, it says, you and me are going to live forever. It says, I'm feeling supersonic. It, tonight I'm a rock and roll star. It's, it's so optimistic. It's mm. so huge. Uh, my friend Steve Manford is uh, a filmmaker and a photographer from Manchester, uh, and he remembers photographing Oasis before anyone had heard of them. And he, they were walking around Manchester taking photographs, and he said Liam was stopping people in the street and saying, mate, we're in Oasis, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. And it's pure belief. You'll remember seeing us. And, and if people gave him any shit for it, he'd offer him a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Not much has changed, has it? <laughs> no. <laughs> But, yeah, as well as that swagger, I remember the first time I saw those boys, it was just such a tonic, that, that, that swagger, that arrogance. It was brilliant. And the fact that we're from around our way, it gave everybody a kick up the arse. Well, yeah, I was going to say, what, what, what was that like? Because, like, you, obviously, your band was going around the same time as they were starting. Like, what was it like seeing something like that kick off? Well, it was great. I mean, I mean even more key for us was uh, when the Stone Roses had been in exile for seven years... Nobody knew where they were. There was the occasional, uh, there was the occasional story on enemy that they've been spotted. Or yeah, something. there'd be like a rumor that like Ian Brown was in like doing kung fu in Japan, yeah. or yeah. like Rennie was like living in a like whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, <laughs> they were they turned up in Bury, our hometown. Yeah. They were working at Square One Studios on the second coming. Uh, and Mark was a pizza delivery boy. The guitarist in Elbow, Mark, was, mm. was a pizza boy. And he came to the studio one day and said, I delivered a pizza to the Stone Roses last night. And, of course, we were like, no, you no, didn't. No, you didn't. Yeah. Shut up, Mark. So, <laughs> so Pete went to work with him the next mm. night. Uh, and Pete and Mark delivered another pizza to the Stone Roses. And Pete verified the claim. And then a bunch of our friends saw him in the city centre, in the town centre of Berrien. <laughs> Do you remember that film, Whistle Down the Wind? No, I don't. So Hayley Mills, it's um, filmed around Lancashire in the 50s. 
it's a beautiful film. Uh, and Alan, can't remember his last name, uh, he's an escaped convict hiding in a barn and a, li- a little <laughs> right. girl discovers him and thinks it's Jesus because he's got a beard. And so he goes along with it because he's wounded. And basically all the local children know that Jesus is is uh, in the barn and they've got to protect him. And, of course, at the end, he's led away by the police in, in a Christ pose. <laughs> it's a really beautiful <laughs> Wow, it, it sounds great, yeah. But it kind of... The Stone Roses in your hometown when you were already in a band and, and nobody told the press, nobody rang the enemy, you know... All the bands in Berry knew where the Stone Roses were and just kept a lid on it. That's amazing. And it goes so well with the biblical imagery that the Stone Roses have per- perpetuated from the very beginning. Yeah, as absolutely, well. yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, that must have been crazy. But, like, I mean, it's such a third of time for you to come up in, like, the, the greater Manchester area. You know, oh, like, because, yeah. like, like, I mean, you, like, I mean, the late 80s and 90s belonged to Manchester, yeah. really, didn't it? But then, yeah. but then you, you don't sound like any of the rest of them. No, I mean, you know, we can force your own sonic path, really. Well, I, th- I think it's because it's really collaborative. There's not two of us writing. Mm. There was five, now there's four, you know, and it's like <clears throat> it's coming from all those different places. And also, we couldn't play when we got together a note. We could play 12 bar blues, that was it. But I remember the first time we stopped a song at the same time, and I could hear it echoing around St. Anne's Church Hall in Tottington. Mm-hmm. The fact that we'd stopped at the precise same moment, I thought, this is amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are, we are one. We are together. And that I'm still chasing that. I'm still... Can you remember that first practice that you guys yeah. had? What was that like? Did you... Because obviously you say you couldn't play anything. Like... I'd only just met... Uh, I knew Mark from Sixth Form College, but not very well. Mm. I'd met Pete Turner in the pub at the end of the previous term of college. So I met Jupp and Craig on the same day. Uh, so I was with a bunch of people I didn't know, posturing that I did know. Uh, I think I remember saying, we'll be signed in six months. And I was only 10 years out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it still happened, though. Um, yeah. What, like, what, what did you play at that first practice? Like, Did you do cover songs? Riding along in my automobile. Uh, Long Tall Sally. And the beginning of Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. But, oh, but right. we only knew the beginning. <laughs> the intro. I got to tell that to Jim Kerr. I yeah. ran into him in the studio and me and Pete went to say hello and told him that story. That, that was that was nice. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a moment. That's a full circle <clears throat> moment, isn't it? Well, down the years, I've met the Stone Roses. I've met all of them apart from John Squire, actually. Uh and yeah, telling your heroes how much they meant to you, mm. it's it's great. And I remember when we got the first EP away, this noise box EP, and there was a bit of local noise about the band. I remember Manny coming into the Night and Day Cafe where we based ourselves most of the time. Which was more of a pub than a cafe, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was a, a bar and venue, still is. Still is, yeah. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> he made a great public spectacle of... Uh, bowing deeply in a kind of we are not worthy way to Pete, our bass player. Oh my God, what do yeah. you do? Your ego goes through the roof. <clears throat> well, I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. But it it was, there was a lot of bands around at the time and we weren't the cool one, you know. We weren't, we weren't, uh, we weren't part of the cool clique. We weren't, we weren't allowed onto Twisted Nerve, for instance. I did mean, you, did you, like, did you have that politics? I mean, I played in bands for years and like, in any scene or city, 
there's the bands that stick together, the bands that like each other, and then there's the other ones going, oh, why are they doing so good? They're shite. Yeah, no, we, we were friends with I Am Clute, um, Badly Drawn Boy, Doves, you know. Uh, mm. Doves took us on our first UK tour and our first US tour. Uh, Badly and uh, the Doves Boys talked us up massively in the national press. Um, and that kind of lip service to the guys coming after you means an awful lot. You have lot. to do that. And that's yeah. something you've done quite a lot as well. Like you've, I mean, you do it weekly on your radio show really yeah. is like, yeah, bring through the ne- the next group. Because if somebody's been good enough to do it to you, you should be good enough to do it back, right? Yeah. And also it's, also, it's a two-way street. If you spot something great that people are going to love, it makes you look cool to point out. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like I spotted Fontaine's DC very, very early on. Uh-huh. And then they came over and said hello and told us they were fans, which was amazing for yeah. us. Very rare that all of Elbow agree on a band, and we all and loved. it was Fontaines, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then and and we played with them in Dublin in the rain, yeah, uh, which was amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and then they came by in just a very sort of brief and respectful doff, and it's good when you're old timers. They'll not, they'll not, they'll not sit and bend your ear for a couple of hours. They'll be in, give give you the platitudes and. Uh, that's very exactly, deep, meaningful words, and then exactly they'll, they'll, happened, they'll so, move yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, cool guys, very cool guys, painfully cool, almost like <laughs> just, just poet warriors, man, big time, big time. Yeah, what was the what was the moment that like you realized that the band was getting better, that you weren't just doing twelve bar blues and stuff like that? Well, I kind of, I didn't finish the thought really when you were talking about the Stone Roses first album being so far away from brilliant compared to the first. Uh, that everyone accepts as the first in the same way before we made these recordings even a month before we made these recordings we were abominable we were terrible but then something switches you do an intense body of work maybe over a couple of weeks and something switches and you hit something and then you all hear and feel this thing which is the best thing about being in a band the sound is suddenly bigger than the sum of the parts. None of you know which person is responsible for it because you're all responsible for it. And you're playing and you're singing and you're writing to the edges of your ability and that's the energy that the first Oasis album, the first Stone Roses album has in common. The first Interpol record as well. Mm -hmm. It's about it hanging together with spider's threads while being made out of something really, you know, quite precious. And did like do you feel that like when you look back at your 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 debut album, do you do you think well, that's the perfect debut album, or like when you listen to your second album, you're like, oh no, that's where we started really hitting our. No, I listen I listen to that recording and I can hear some things that make me chuckle in my in my voice and my delivery. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite singing in my accent, you know. I'm still singing. Uh, Love, I call it my Sunday best voice instead of love. Mm. So you love, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I can hear all my vowels are still sort of. I'm very, very. Con- One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conscious that somebody's listening as opposed to thinking about the song. Mm-hmm. You know, and that long note that I hit at the end of that tune is the reason we don't play anymore. I just can't physically do that anymore. And in that long note, and the fact that we decided to burst ranks in that way and bring those saxophones in, looking back, it, it's a crazy decision, but it works really well. Yeah. And, and it got me as it was intended to that time. I got goosebumps. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've had goosebumps since we wrote it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it, it definitely it, it hits you quite hard. Yeah, and it's sort of uh, that is. I can hear the sound of five old pals very, very frustrated with the situation and determined that they're going to be heard. That's what I can hear there. I love that. What was the first um, show you guys did like? Um, The first show was Elbow. Hmm. Well, we all remember it very fondly. The, the, The year before, we played at Manchester Roadhouse and six people came. As soft, we couldn't even get our family to come and see us. <laughs> and then we had this period that we're talking about and made changes to the way we thought about writing. Uh, and we filled the roadhouse and got all the local support and sold out the EP. Um, so I've always remembered the gig really fondly, like suddenly we were brilliant. But I listened to the desk tape a few years ago. Have you still got it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's awful. Really? (laughs) Like just not not tight or? Not tight, not well performed. All of the sounds are crap because we didn't have very good gear. Uh, And I don't know what the people in the audience saw, but they had a good time. Did you come off stage feeling like the the second coming? Yeah. We knew knew we'd we'd done something. We plugged into something, Mm. you know. And uh, I remember Peter Jobson, who's my best friend to this day, the bass player in I Am Clue, very much our sister band in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Pete saying in his warm, Geordie tones, fucking hell, Garth, that Powder Blue song, there'll be some shagging done to that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the ultimate compliment. Well, like, I mean, if you didn't write that as a, a little press caption on the front of your album, <laughs> then, do you know what I mean? Like, you'd have NME going, a thrilling, incredible debut, and then... There'll be some shagging done to that, Peter Jobson. <laughs> <laughs> maybe wait for, like, the next big significant, like, date uh, for that album, and then maybe... <laughs> put it out. Um, I kind of want to talk about, like, your, your musical influences, because, like, yeah, you've got, like, you've got Irish heritage, um... Is it your 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 mum or your dad or both or, or, or from uh, way back both? But, yeah, both. Um, on my dad's side, uh, I think a hundred odd years before. I think if I'm right in saying this, uh, on my dad's side, uh, Patrick Garvey arrived in Liverpool as a lone infant at some point over a hundred years ago by himself. Yeah, like- we d- we don't know if that's. Uh, there was somebody waiting to receive him, i.e. family had sent him over. 
Or he was orphaned. We don't know. God, it makes it sound like The Godfather. You know, when the, 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 the kid arrives over in Ellis Island oh, by himself. Oh, yeah. At Vito Corleone. Vito Corleone. 1901. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Um, it might not be as sad as we think. Uh, it could be that his just, mother had gone ahead. You're, you're projecting your narrative, like, onto... But, like, it, like growing up in a sort of family like that, because I, I, I always feel being an Irish person and being proud of my Irish culture and heritage I've got an affinity with people from Liverpool and Manchester because yeah. they're so heavily populated yeah. by people with Irish heritage and well look at the size of my head <laughs> there's my Irish roots exactly well that's it's just to, it's just to keep you going with all the wind do you know what I mean <laughs> it's to keep you low, it's a load bearing head yeah. like <laughs> centre of gravity thing um, like what did you did they did you grow up with Irish music in the house did you grow up, what sort of music did you grow up with well I was brought up a Catholic um, so we had, uh, and I, we were part of an Irish Catholic community, mm. you know, so everybody from the woman who delivered me to the priest at the church to most of my mum's friends, I was surrounded by Irish culture growing up. Uh, Irish traditional music, not in the house really. Uh, my five sisters, we had one hi-fi and it was a small house. Uh, so there was battles? Yeah. Um, and because I was the first boy, uh, well, actually, Marcus and I were brought up together as a novelty, you know, yeah. two boys after five girls. So they would sit and tell you why this was great music. Um, my sister Karen, to, these, to this day, is just mad about uplifting danceable music. She's the biggest Elton John fan in the world. Uh, and so you had all that crocodile rock thing going on. My sister Sam was a punk. Uh, so you know, grew up with the strength. Yeah, I feel like you probably gravitated to, to that a little bit more, did you? Well, I, all of it went in. And yeah. I loved all of it, and I don't think it would be unusual now to love Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen alongside uh, Genesis, alongside the Stranglers, alongside you know. See, I definitely struggled with that when I was uh, uh, maybe about fifteen or sixteen, because I really like you know the Clash were like the band that changed it all for me, as they have done. For every generation since, yeah. <clears throat> and we'll continue to do so. Mm. But I really like Queen as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really like all their songs. I like, I like Freddie Mercury more than I like Queen. If you know what I mean. I love Queen. Yeah, and I, I was just sitting there like maybe seventeen, and I'd be like constantly like, obviously, how easy is life when the biggest problem you've got in the world is I can't like the Clash and Queen at the same time. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> Identity crisis. This is it. But I don't think. I don't think people growing up now have that problem. No. You don't have to belong to any faction. Uh, and music's music. And actually, it's been the redemption of some artists that were chased out by the cool police, mm. you know. Uh, Phil Collins being appreciated There's by a, the hip-hop community, yeah. you know. Kenny, Kenny, uh, no, what do you call him? Mike DeMarco's doing all this. Michael McDonald. Um, like a lot of that soft rock yeah. style of stuff. Yeah, has been completely taken over by hip hop. Yeah, and and it's just people who w weren't aware of what you could and couldn't like at the time. I think Queen was seen as soapy and not real rock, and yeah, a soft option. Uh, and actually, when you hit, listen to it, that's some of the most energetic stuff. It's amazing. It's just that it's really refined and, and really super camp. Like one of the most popular artists for for kids at the minute is an artist called Rex OC, Rex Orange County. Um, he sounds like Randy Newman, and he's like eighteen. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? I think in that respect, there's never been a better time to be making music mm. because you don't have to... People are open to a lot of different things. You don't have to be tribal. 
Uh, the other thing is, I always had a problem with trend-setting journalists. You know, it's like the first one of the major newspapers. I don't want to embarrass this guy. One of the the, the major music newspapers at the time. Um, the first uh, review of the EP that I'm playing you mm. was easy listening, and that was it. That was that was that the was review. the whole review. Yeah. That's, um, that's and very the, the caustic, other, isn't it? The other major newspaper gave it a great review, and yeah. then John Peel put it in his festive fifty, that which song, is that massive. Song. Like back, like you. Oh God, it was huge. John Peel being the harbinger of all things cool, putting yeah. your thing in his fifty tracks of the year. Was... I remember exactly what he said the first time he played it as well. Because I listened to it over and over again. We'd never heard our stuff on the radio, and yeah. he played that version of Powder Blue, and then he said. <laughs> That's from Manchester Band Elbow. It's coming out on Soft Records. It's called Powder Blue. And in a couple of years, I'll be eligible to wear Powder Blue slacks, which is something I'm looking forward to a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> and then he played... Uh, he played a Van Morrison tune for Tom, his son Tom, yeah. who'd just gone away to start university. Oh, right. And he said, this is for our son Tom, who's missing his mum and dad. And he played that Van Morrison we were born before the wind. He played that straight oh after. God, and right. then years later, I've been a colleague on Radio 6 of Tom's for how long? <laughs> and it's lovely the way it comes around. I got to meet his dad once and thank him for putting us in the Festive 50. But the guy that wrote the two-word review mm. for the major newspaper and embarrassed us so, uh, I colluded with my manager and we asked him to do the press for the band. What? So that he wasn't out there. And he, so you, instead, and he, in, so and he took the money and he became our press guy for a little while. I mean, wrote our biogs and stuff. That's insane. That's like keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Yeah, I and think I, there might. And I never mentioned to him. We've had some adventures since. He's still my pal, and I've never mentioned to him <laughs> that that's why I did it. But that's why I did it. Wow, that is that is crazy. The, what with um. With radio, like, was that the best way for you to break back? And somebody who's, like, obviously been doing radio for as long as you have, do you feel that that was the way that album broke? Do you think it was live the way that you broke? Do you think it was the music papers? What do you think that sort of the kind of music the catalyst? The kind of music we ended up making, which is like Powder Blue, uh, which is this kind of <clears throat> melancholy, exploratory, balladeering, romantic uh, stuff it has since become popularised and huge and um, and lots of people rightly point to Coldplay for breaking it and making it an international sound mm. you know and their version of it um, isn't as intricate as Elbows theirs is very much about pop and pop markets And but they were very very good to us they took us on tour and they talked us up uh, and they're still pals to this day but yeah, we were part of a certain kind of songwriting, which was about blokes talking about their feelings. It just hadn't happened like that before. Not really. But like, did did you get, did you have problems with being so expressive and being from Manchester well, at yeah. that time? Do you know, I mean, like yeah, this? we we were sort of, we were, um, if you imagine where, uh, where music was coming from in terms of like everything that, uh, 
Creation Records was doing, which was about rock and roll and about arrogance mm -hmm. and about everything that rightly should be part of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. We were arguably this soft option. And I remember uh, Alan Creation Records. McGee. Yeah. Alan McGee. Yeah. Um, he was quoted in the enemy uh, of insulting Coldplay and Keen. It was the the famous bedwetters thing. Oh, yeah. When he coined that yeah. phrase. Uh, and we were lumped in as part of this insult that Alan McGee had said. And he phoned my manager the following day and he said, I love Elbow and I did not count Elbow in amongst that. And the journalist has added them. You know. So the journalist has like a, it, it an axe to grind? Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean... I don't want to get myself in trouble now, but I was talking to a journalist from another country that we're about to visit uh, the other day. Um, and the first guy I spoke to knew our back catalogue and we had a really, really in-depth and interesting conversation mm -hmm. about how music's changed in the time we've been making it. And then the next journalist said, critics of your band may say that it's all a bit soft soapy, it's all a bit crybaby, it's all a bit... And if it's not doing that, then it's great big anthems about love which don't really have any depth and I was like sounds like you know these critics quite well <laughs> do you know what I mean? That sounds like you are one. Exactly Yeah, yeah. and, and then I said you know I said I, I don't apologise for what we do because I know it's coming from an honest place whether or not you like it is totally up to you but I know we accomplished what we meant to do and also if you look at the back catalogue in depth rather than just the big anthems we're known for mm -hmm. There's really, there's songs of hate and there's songs of darkness and despair and there's something for everybody in there, you know. But this guy had made his mind up that we were one day like this and nothing else. But the, I, that, that's it. Like, you, if you've got somebody, like a journalist, who's going in with a predisposed idea of who you are, I mean, you're kind of wasting your time, really, aren't you? Yeah. And, and it's 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 one of those things as well. I've seen journalism change in the time. Well, music journalism barely exists now, really. Yeah, it's, still, it's, in order it's to, there by the skin of its teeth. In, in order to keep your, your head above the parapet as a critic, you, you've got to be controversial. Uh, so rather than being a trusted voice that leads people to records that they will love, you end up being this kind of arch tastemaker who occasionally says something they don't believe mm -hmm. in order to keep their own image. But do you think that somewhere like Six Music is really where music journalism has gone now? Like, a, 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 like the... They don't hire anybody on Six Music that doesn't know their onions. They don't hire anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't. It's been the same presenters for how long? I don't know. You they, tell they, me. They reshuffle them, but yeah, uh, it's basically since it was under threat of closure. Uh -huh. There's, I don't think there's been a single addition. Amy Lemay, of course. There you go. You're absolutely right. I mean, I listen to it a lot, so like I, I, I'll, like I'll, I love it. I'm so proud of being. But part of the, the majority of the the presenters on Six Music are either journalists, ex journalists, or pop stars. Well, it was an unusual thing f for an active musician to become a radio presenter when I did. Because you started on XFM, didn't you? Yeah, it's like I've been doing it for thirteen years. So you would have been doing it with um, you would have been doing it out of Manchester from XFM back yeah. back then. I filled in for Mark Riley when he went on holiday. He asked me as a pal to do his show, and I hashed it up. I, I very arrogantly turned up with my record box and thought, "How hard can it be?" And then I really wished I'd done some prep. Yeah, you so were like I asked him if I could do it again, um, and then uh, Mike 
Walsh was setting up XFM Manchester and he offered me five shows a week off the strength of what he heard. Wow, okay. And I said, I can't do that many. It can't be bigger than the band, but I'll accept mm. Sunday afternoon. And then eventually I moved 10 till midnight and I was 10 till midnight on six for as long as I could hang on. And then my boss made me move to the the afternoon on Sunday, but I love it yeah. there. I you, love it there. Yeah, I mean, like I've been doing a Sunday show now on on Radio One for a, a couple of years. There's a difference. There's a difference between doing a, <clears throat> a show on a Sunday and doing a show during the the middle of the week. Yeah, the listenership are much more docile. Yeah, and and much uh, and they listen deeper. I feel because I've done I've done Monday to Thursday. Ten, I've done ten to midnight. I did the old John Peel slot when I yeah. started. Um, and you actually, f- I feel that the people listen to the music a lot more deeper than they it's do. It's a lot more personal, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're, you're not you're not caught in the rat race, mm. I don't feel. Mm. And the live listen is something special. There, there is a special nature about about doing a Sunday. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's, yeah my, my preferred slot was 10 till midnight on a Sunday because although it was fewer listeners, I knew it would be even more intensely what you're describing. Mm. It would be more personal for those that were listening. And it was for a long time. Is it difficult to keep the radio going when you've got the band going as well? Because I notice you you do take time off where you're just like, right, somebody else will cover. Was Killian Murphy covering you? Yeah, Killian Not- covers. He's covered me twice now while yeah. I've been doing elbow stuff. I mean, that's partly because I'm busy when I'm touring, mm. but it's also to avoid having two hats on publicly. It's like I find my radio show is very personally uh, a very personal thing. And it is about the listener recommendations. It's about people telling me what they love in music. And if it gets me, mm. I then project that out again. And everybody's record collections get a bit bigger. I'd say my record collection now is like a... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's an old 1980s Casio watch going off there. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, it's um, My record collection's an easier third of it is listener recommendations over the past 13 years. Mm-hmm. And I've kept the names with the files in my computer of everybody who's ever recommended a song. So when I play a Red House Painters tune that I heard it for the first time in 2003, I can tell you who recommended it and thank him again. So I love that. So the community is just something that keeps refreshing itself. It, it's building and building. Yeah. Because like, there's so many of you in Albo, like the, 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 and you all make music and you're all full-time musicians. Does that mean when one of their other guys in Albo is making music and they know you're on the radio, they'll be like, I'm actually doing a solo project. You gotta, you, you have to play this. <laughs> I mean, no. Do you I, get to that level? Because I've like, I've no, got to that I do, level. I do like, play stuff yeah. they've done. So Craig produced the last C. Duncan record. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah, it's brilliant. I've, I've heard but it, yeah. we only know Chris because I played him on my show and loved it. Mm-hmm. And then we took him on the road and we toured together for about a year. And, there, and that's where he met Craig. Craig should produce a hip hop album. Mm-hmm. Uh, any anybody who gave him a try there would come away with something very special. Yeah, uh, because that's where his enthusiasm lies. He, he loves great big fat beats, and he and you know he, he would make a very interesting hip hop record. I mean, I want I want to hear that. There's something I want to get talking about because I do my research. I find that there was a documentary about your band. When you went to play in Cuba, mm. I couldn't find it anywhere, and I really wanted to watch it. 
and I'm gutted because I love like the. I think there's I, the, some snippets I, on YouTube. Yeah, I wanted to watch the whole thing because I like I'm fascinated by Cuba. I've never been, mm. but what was it like as a band to in Cuba? Well, it was very different then. This was like 2002, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Manics had been out there, but nobody else had. Um, we were watched by the Cuban secret police wherever we went, but they were kind of quite bad at it. <laughs> uh, the, the, they were kind of, are we still doing this? It kind of felt, you know, these two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we They tried to steer us round the poverty and the secret police culture, which very much existed there, because like the rest of the Western world, I considered it this free socialist pearl, mm-hmm. this anti-American symbol of socialism working, but it didn't, and it wasn't. It was a very controlled, very controlling place. You're not You're free to move. You're making it like North Vietnam. It was exactly like Russia with yeah. sunshine. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, <clears throat> we got talking to some hip-hop artists who are in some of the clips that we uh, that, that are online, and they were very vocally anti-El Presidente, and the following day in front of us, they were thrown in a police van. <laughs> You're like, geez, take me back to Manchester time. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, there's nothing th- free about it. I mean, amazing, this bubble, this period in time, I'm sure that the people they ousted were needed ousting, you mm. know, that's generally the nature of revolution. <coughs> but what it had become was a dictatorship, mm. you know. What about the the Olympics? When I came to London for the first time, the Olympics was starting. Like that was the first summer that I started covering people at, at Radio One, and I just moved off the dole and was getting paid for the first time. So I was like, "Wow, this!" I mean, like London Olympics is like really one's big weekend was in like Hackney Marches. Like I don't know, I just felt like everything was so bright. Um, like that year but your song like uh you know like it was everywhere throughout the whole olympics yeah that was amazing <laughs> it was amazing it's a strange thing you when we wrote one day like this we had no inclination we knew it'd be popular it must be one of the most synced tracks of like that decade really well it, it's it, it yeah it, it kind of felt like any yeah it was everywhere anthemic or you know fist bumping scene there was like there that was, was there yeah yeah I mean, but to this day, people get married to it. Mm. We've been offered obscene amounts of money by advertisers for it. Mm-hmm. But you can't go there, you know. Um, if we ever do have to go there, like much like the jazz album, <laughs> you, you know that I'm skint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, it, it's the fact that people walk down the aisle to it is just great. <clears throat> it's like we were so happy to have a record like the seldom seen kid and we were in such a euphoric state to be back on a record label and about to release an album and david joseph the head of the label uh to this day phoned me up and he said guy this is the best elbow record that you've made and we'll sell more records for you than you've ever sold before and we'll do you proud but if you have another song that could help us at radio um, that'd be great. That's such a typical record industry thing, isn't it? Like, but no, he was. But he was. He was really gentlemanly, yeah. which well. which isn't typically a record industry. You know? Very it, true. it wasn't a demand. He said, "If you tell me this is it, this is it." But if you have gone, and I, and I said, "Well, it's taken two and a half years uh-huh. to write the other ten, so it's unlikely." But I will absolutely give it a shot. And we were so delighted at the time, and I was newly in love as well, uh, and I was living in the centre of Manchester, and things were picking up. And 
So we wrote this thing, and while we were putting it together, we realized what we had. And it was almost like, this is going to be the most popular song we've ever released. This is going to be really popular. You know, mm -hmm. Do you want this to define what we do, given there's so many strands to our work? But we said, but it's great, and it's going to have people singing it from the top, you know, the tops of their voices. Yeah. So it's like we allowed ourselves that anthem. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it became so big, it, it roller-coastered us, it, it doubled our audience, it was the Olympics, it was any other sporting event, and then people started getting married to it, and people, honestly, on a weekly basis, somebody comes up and says, I walked down the aisle to your song. <laughs> you know, and it, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a legacy... You know, I never, do, I never do, thought we'd have. Do you have people coming up with a song for all occasions? As in, like, do you hear about people getting buried to like, yeah. elbow songs? Do you have people yeah. like playing their child, the first song they've ever heard? Like lots of births. Yeah. Is there any shocking ones that you're like going, "I lost my virginity to this song"? Yeah, that quite often happens. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, there's an awful lot because. We've lost friends down the years, which you do by mm -hmm. your mid forties, and mm -hmm. and because we've written about that, there's an awful lot of I listen to this when thinking about my friend, mm. you know, which is just so amazingly flattering. Um, I think because we've written I, I, lyrically, I've written about life and I've written about things that have happened. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to soundtrack people's lives, you know. Uh, there's no right or wrong way to write lyrics, but... It must give you a, a, a great sense of comfort, knowing that you're bringing comfort to other people through through your music. But sometimes with that, it brings quite a, a heavy hat because if you've if your music has meant something to somebody, then they want to tell you that. And sometimes those stories can be absolutely harrowing or very hard to d deal with. I'm yeah. sure you get a lot of people pouring their hearts out to you as well. Yeah, and it's... Um it's you know I'm always willing to listen because I don't feel that responsibility you're talking about. I did the first, the first time I heard something really heavy, mm. which was you don't really need it in your head. If I'm honest with you, Phil, but it it was some something as 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 bad a thing as can happen to somebody had happened. Yeah, yeah. And at a ceremony connected to it, they played one of our songs. And I remember it feeling really, really awful. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking to friends about it and talking to my mum about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then making some decisions, which was you can either dilute the honesty and the passion you try and put in your lyrics in order to avoid this feeling of responsibility, or you can learn not to feel responsible. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. There's no choice there, really, is there? Mm -hmm. It's like start writing puerile shite that means nothing, mm -hmm. uh, or just sounds cool, um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, bands have made careers of it. Absolutely, but the stuff that resonates most with me, the stuff that I find feeling like a part of myself, is when I feel that it's cost the person who's writing it something, or that they're sharing something really intimate. Yeah. Uh, so of because course that's the same way that. you connect with the artists that you like, do you know? The, the, it's funny, I quite often wonder, when I think about my very favourite music and, and the stuff that really, really gets me, um, it's of a certain tempo, it's of a certain mood, mm. um, it's sapling fresh, it's also quite uh, gentle and fragile, 
And I think, is that just who I am in the middle? Yeah. You know? I got, uh, there's sometimes with those, like, the, like, I mean, the last Nick Cave album's probably the hardest album I've listened to I ever. literally, literally can't get through it. I, like, I, I've... I had like I was listening to it coming home because obviously a lot of stuff went on in his life and if you know Nick Cave you'll know what that is, um, without going into it. But uh, I listened to it coming home from work and I tried to finish it about four or five times and I eventually did, but I had to grip my teeth yeah. and hold on to the bar on the bus that I was going home yeah. on to get through it I, I, because I, it's so. Without exaggeration, I've got as far as the end of track three. Yeah, uh, about three times, and I've just been absolutely awash. Yeah, you know, absolutely awash, uh-huh. and it, and it's kind of the conflict is also when you write your life. You know, at a point you think, "Am I getting songs out of this? Am I getting songs out of this tragedy?" Mm. You know, and then once you've done it a few times, and you realise that you're paying homage to feelings, and that you're. Uh, I don't do it as therapy for the people. I do it as uh, an obligation to the boys I write with mm-hmm. um, and homage to the people I'm writing about, mm-hmm. you know. So, friend of ours, the last track on uh, Seldom Seen Kid, we've only performed once, which was with the BBC Concert Orchestra, mm-hmm. because it's about the very first friend I lost, Brian Glancy. Yeah. Uh, and I can't perform it without crying, you know, so so we don't so play it. So you just don't play it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, why would you put yourself through that on stage? Yeah, and and also, we'll never better the performance that we recorded with the BBC Orchestra. It's like, I think it's... <laughs> yeah, you know. once it's done, it's done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is, uh, what is the rest of this year hold, hold for you? Are you going out on... On tour or yeah, we're going to Australia. Uh, we're playing. A t- we're playing all around the UK in, in April and March. A uh, couple of festivals, and then back to writing another record. <laughs> I think yeah. You do it, and you do like it normally takes you. What I think I read somewhere two every two. You, like, takes you two years, I think. To, yeah, two and a half to, normally. Two and a half. Mm. So what process are you at right now? Potts sent me something that he did the other day, um, and I asked Craig for something quite specific the other day, which he sent me. Mm-hmm. So I've got two little files on the go. I, I write all the time. I've always got, you know, mm. a means of, of putting my thoughts down, and I write all the time. Um, and I'm toying with the idea for the first time of, of putting some poetry together. I've, I've always written poetry alongside songs, and um, for Christmas... I'm a huge fan of Seamus Heaney. And and for Christmas, my wife bought me all of his books in pocket form. Oh, wow, right. So he's always with me. Oh, you've got you've got all Seamus in your pocket there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, he's such a strong character and he's, he's writing, he's so mm. rooted in place and time, but also in his personality. Um, the, it is like having Seamus in your pocket. <laughs> and um, and I see his cheeky face and, he's, you know, he's he's like... Uh, and he, he's just wise and wonderful and kind, uh, and it, and it's inspired me to put down the stuff that wouldn't make song, yeah, idiosyncratic details of my childhood that would never make an elbow song. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually one poem specifically called "A Sofa in the Forties." Uh, uh, do you want to hear a bit? Yeah, yeah go for it. Uh, a sofa in the forties, 
All of us on the sofa in a line, kneeling behind each other, eldest down to youngest, elbows going like pistons, for this was a train. And between the jam wall and the bedroom door, our speed and distance were inestimable. First we shunted, then we whistled, then somebody collected the invisible for tickets and very gravely punched it as carriage after carriage under us moved faster. Chuck-a-chuck, the sofa legs went giddy, and the unreachable ones far out on the kitchen floor began to wave. It's just kids playing on a sofa yeah. and pretending it's a train, and it's just so beautiful. That's amazing, yeah, I love and, that. And by, I mean, it goes on, the poem, uh, and as you can imagine, far out on the kitchen floor began to wave, the unreachable ones... Pretty soon the poem's about looking back on, on, on childhood and much bigger themes. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's been spurred by something in his memory. And in that way, you realise the best thing you can write are the details of your past that you perhaps don't think are precious because they've always been there. Mm -hmm. You know, So the shade of green of our battered garage door at home Every every other garage door on the housing estate I grew up on was shiny or wooden or automatic, and ours was dented, rusty, <laughs> battered, and green. Yeah. And when I think about it, I think I wonder if there's a few lines in that which puts puts our family in a, a place in time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and we were the scruffy kids on the estate. Yeah. You know, because there was one wage and seven kids, and sort of. You know, I think it's time to write those little things down. I, I want to read that. I really want to read Thanks. that. Thanks. Thanks, man. Yeah. Because <laughs> also uh, I've tried to put them in song. There was like, Pop came up with a beautiful little riff. Uh, and we wrote we wrote a song together that was nearly on the last album. Um, But it was too specific and too sweet and wasn't relating to the rest of the themes on the album, which was pretty heavy, really. It was about our friends dying and my dad dying. It was Grenfell, it was Brexit. Mm. And this very sweet song about camping with my family <laughs> didn't really <laughs> yeah, feel, yeah. you know, too many kids for the engine was the opening line. Mm -hmm. And and it sort of, you know, uh, too many kids for the engine, mum praying hard for the weather, uh, and the da-da-da when the fly sheet flies, but the frail old seams hold together. It's about the fact that the family tent Still works. <laughs> my sister Gina's got yeah. the same tent that she went camping in 60 years ago. Oh, my God. Because she's kept it greased and dry. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. So we can look forward to the book of poetry. Hey, Christmas is coming around now in, what, like, what, 10 months <laughs> from when we record this? Like, you know that you need to get it out there for Christmas, right? Well, I think probably what I'll do is write two or three, publish them online, gauge the response... And then if people aren't going, back in your box, Garvey, get to work on another album. I feel like you'll get a publishing deal now. Somebody, somebody will be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for inviting me into your studio and thank you for playing me that um, wonderful piece of music uh, at the beginning as well. Thanks for the trip down memory line, Phil. Lovely to see you. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.